ladies and gents, uh, welcome back. It's uh, Elliot at Engineers, and we've got Sharia here today. Sharia is from uh, MetaView, and um, he's ex Palantir, he's co founder of MetaView. He's going to give us uh, a little bit of insight into conversation analytics in interviewing. Now, uh, this is probably a topic that resonates with uh, quite a lot of us, quite a lot of us, uh, especially in engineering, obviously, um, some affiliated topics to all of us who are listening, most likely. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great, Elliot. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So give us a little bit of insight into MetaView and who MetaView are and and where the idea came from. Yeah, absolutely. So look, we, we're on a mission to make team building just as informed by insights and data as any other key business area. And of course, that is a huge mission that will take a, a long, long time to achieve. But where we are starting is by enabling organizations to get really, really good at interviewing. And I'll talk a bit more about kind of where, where the idea came from and how we've kind of validated it, etc. But the, the, the fundamental problem when it comes to interviewing is that over time, your interviewing population and the quality of your interviewing population declines. Because ordinarily what happens is that initially you train people and you'd let them know what how like what good interviews look like and what you should do and then they're left on their own and then for the rest of the lifetime of their interviewing um, career they just continue interviewing and therefore they develop each person develops their own bad habits each person's way of assessing or attracting a candidate diverges from everyone else in the organization and what happens over time is the quality of the system as a whole drastically drops it becomes very inconsistent the rigor becomes very different amongst different interviewers and ultimately people start looking for different things in candidates. Uh, mm. So when, when you then sit in a round table and someone says, I don't think we should move forward because this candidate is low grit, it is very hard to understand what that even means. Uh, and <laughs> even if you knew what that meant, it's very hard to know what that person means because they haven't been calibrated for everyone else in like, over a year. Uh, so that's, uh, that's where we're starting. Uh, and that's what we're trying to solve. We're trying to help companies get really good at interviewing uh, by consistently getting feedback uh, from our product. And that's what our product does. It provides companies feedback. It provides interviewers with feedback on their on their interviews. So we don't focus on the candidates. We don't assess the candidates or anything like that. We're focused on oh, wow. interviewers and helping interviewers become excellent at interviewing. That's uh, that's what we do. But yeah, happy happy to talk a bit more about the genesis of it uh, as well. If you think that's a good direction to go, otherwise um, we can talk about other things. Yeah, I, I'd love to understand that. I'd really love to understand that. Pe- people are pretty complex. Um, and you've obviously got quite quite a good understanding um, and insights into that. So help help me understand or help us understand the genesis. Yeah, look, the the f- foundation of where we saw this problem, as you mentioned, prior to starting MetaView, now it's it's now been over three years. But prior to that, I used to work at a company called Palantir. Uh, where I did a lot of uh, tech leading in, especially within their European uh, ecosystem. Uh, of course, a big part of that is just 
the usual product and engineering responsibilities that you expect the tech leads to have. But a large portion of it was also hiring and building teams. Mm. Um, very similar uh, kind of theme as well for uh, our other co-founder, Sile, who used to lead one of Uber's products uh, in Amsterdam, which is where the European headquarters is. Yep. You know, a lot of his responsibilities were around uh, making the product happen, uh, essentially. But of course, as uh, as leadership within these companies, you're also spending a lot, of, a lot of your time building teams. And the thing that kind of is very cliche these days, and everyone agrees on it, is that hiring decisions are the most important decisions you make. Now, no one argues about that because it's obvious that success or failure of any organization is a function of the people in that organization. So it's obvious that the hiring decisions are so important. The thing that we realized, having been so involved in that machine, was that interviews are the most outcome-defining part of this process because it's where you're learning the most about the candidates, but it's also where the candidates are learning the most about you, which is mm -hmm. something people often forget. It's not all about assessing candidates. It's also about attracting candidates, especially within particular cohorts. Candidates have a lot of options. So like, why, you know, why should they come work at MetaView or at Palantir or at Google, right? Um, and coming from the product and engineering world where for a long time we've had very good observability and telemetry into our systems mm -hmm. and we make decisions that fundamentally require human judgment but are very data informed it is very foreign when you look at you know these some of the most important activities which are these interviews and how yeah. opaque they are no data is coming out of them there's no telemetry there's no observability and therefore how could you possibly improve this process if you don't know what's happening with, within it at scale across your organization in aggregate. And I can give you hi a hypothetical example. Let's say we're a company, uh, whatever, Pied Piper, and we are just opening an office in a, in a particular region in Europe, and we are really struggling to make candidates accept our offers. We're giving out offers, but they are not accepting these offers. They're rejecting our offers. As a recruitment team, what are my options in diagnosing this problem? The options are very limited. You have to make a bunch of guesses, basically. Me as a person, one of the questions that I would have is, I'd love to know what are these candidates asking in the interviews? What are the most common questions they're asking? And the answer to that question in most organizations today is shrug. I have no idea what they're asking. Let's ask a few interviewers. In organizations that use MetaView, the answer is, let's open MetaView and look at all the data that we have. Let's break it down and only filter to the candidates that are in this particular region of Europe where we're doing our, uh, we're opening our new office. And let's put all the candidate questions in particular, in, like, group them by themes and see what the themes are. And while we're doing that, let's also do the same thing for the rest of the world, uh, every other office that we have, and compare these two and see how they differ. And okay. that, you know, and that's kind of where it starts to get very interesting. And that is, that was really the genesis of MetaView. So we saw that these interviews were just so outcome defining, yet completely opaque. And of course, as you know, there are metrics and things in other parts of the hiring pipeline, in our opinion, not the most important part of it. And that, that's, that's what gave birth to MetaView. Uh, can you help us break down some more of those conversation analytics? Because I think, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point that you make. What questions are people asking uh, our interviewers in the interview? But what other analytics 
are you looking at that make up the MetaView platform? Yeah, we look at a variety of different things. Uh, I won't go through all of them, uh, but I'll okay. give you some flavors. Who is speaking when and for how long? How fast are people sleeping, speaking? Are there interruptions happening? When are they happening? Who's interrupting who? Uh, when we talk about questions, how many questions are being asked? Assessment questions. Um, what types of questions are being asked? Of course, there are so many different types of questions, closed, open, behavioral, hypothetical. In a, like a coding interview, you might, be, you might be hinting, and that's almost the type of question. Um, uh, so, so those things. And you, you can take a whole bunch of these metrics, and there's other ones as well, even like very, very subtle ones, uh, like the number of filler words that someone is using or the... Uh, level of hostility in their language and stuff like that. Um, mm. You can then take these and there are many other supporting data that organizations already have that will help you slice and dice uh, your interviews based on this metric. So for example, you can start to say, hey, I want to know, I want to look at all our hiring manager interviews that are male interviewers. And I want to understand more about the complexion of the conversation when they're interviewing male candidates versus female candidates. How much are they talking in these two different scenarios? How much are they interrupting? And of course, as you would expect, in that particular example, there are huge differences where, for example, when a male interviewer is interviewing a female candidate, they ask a lot more questions, but also they speak a lot more. So not only are you trying to be a more rigorous interviewer by asking a lot of questions, you're also giving the candidate far less time to actually shine. Um, yeah. That on its own doesn't really, isn't like sufficient to make any action. But the point is there are now these jumping off points for further inquiry into how are we doing our interviews. So that's, um, you know, that, that's like directionally what we do. There's some good points. And I'm reflecting on my probably my most recent interviews and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, okay, um, and, and assessing my own performance. Interesting. So I'm keen to touch on the point where you're, you're mentioning uh, Silent, the, the the genesis of MetaView. You've obviously spoken about your experience. So let's try and tie it together. So help us understand you're in that infancy stage. How do you actually start to define the product and the architecture for this? Help us understand those two components. Uh, Touch on the the architecture part, because I think that's going to be particularly interesting. That's an interesting question. There's a couple of things worth kind of being aware of. We are product people uh, obsessed with our customers. The thing that matters to us are our customers. The reason the company exists, obviously any company exists, are the customers. And therefore, when we make an architectural decision or an engineering decision, it is it does not happen in isolation because of just the engineering problem. It happens a lot of the context around why this is the best thing for our customers is also important. And so really in the... In the beginning, uh, the way we started out was, look, we have, we have certain things we want to test to see whether they work well for our customers or not. And so how can we ensure we are spending ultimately our most valuable resource, which is time, 
as close to 100% of it on our core competencies, on things that are going to be highly valuable to our customers and de-risk our business. And so when thinking about it from that lens, our architectural decision end up going down the what is now called the like the serverless ecosystem, which yep. is f- fundamentally you you pay for what you use, uh, and the management or DevOps overhead or requirements are very different to the uh, traditional uh, kind of infrastructure, and that serverless ecosystem really allows you to focus on your core competencies like the other things that are going to make your company great and de-risk important things for your company and not spend time on everything else that every other company also needs to spend time on like making sure your servers are up and making sure uh the the quality of them are improving over time and stuff like that well we essentially as do most companies these days have tens of thousands of engineers and aws worrying about most of our problems uh, so we don't yeah. have to, and we can focus on our basically like customer logic. Um, and that yeah. was one of the things that we did very early on, very deliberately, uh, somewhat controversially at the time compared to the rest of the industry. Uh, but but for us, the decision-making process is very easy. It is, this will allow us to spend the most amount of time on customer problems and not on like making sure internally we're like, you know, have what this server up or whatever. So, okay. So was it, was it controversial more from a reliability aspect? I think it was controversial in that a lot of people at the time would have thought the serverless movement feels a bit like a fad. Okay. And it had a lot of unknowns. Uh, and of course it, it has a lot of downsides as well. It has upsides, it has downsides like everything else. But again, I think once you have your, the context for your business and the what is most valuable for your customers. Uh, the decision making process actually uh, is actually not very difficult, and it's just like su- such an obviously good uh, use of technology for us. You know, like when we, when we first started, there were uh, there was speed and latency concerns with serverless. Yeah. Um, which to this date they are much better, but the concerns are still there. But you know, it it is a bunch of trade offs. I think you know we are actually fine with having higher latency uh, but being able to spend 60 percent more engineering resources on core business problems as opposed to like making sure the really really fast servers that we have are up and running in in the way that you know uh, we don't have to worry about today going back a few years would you change anything uh, about the design or decisions that you made from a tech perspective doesn't sound like you would i don't know but uh, hit me with it yeah no i I think broadly speaking we would make the same decisions uh, over again i think uh, the the interesting thing that has now happened in hindsight is as i said as and as you know there are positives and negatives to every decision that you make Uh, and i think it's just that over the past three years we are as the ecosystem has grown with us the positives or negatives of this decision are just now a lot more obvious, a lot more well-documented. Uh, people speak, uh, there's a lot more content around it and therefore the discourse is helpful in getting in, in mitigating for especially the weaknesses. These were some of the stuff that three years ago didn't really exist. And yeah. so perhaps some of the lessons we had to learn ourselves, maybe the hard way, uh, especially around like observability and monitoring of a serverless environment and how that's different to uh, like traditional architectures. Yeah, but the fundamental decision 
I'm, I'm very confident we, would, we wouldn't have changed that. Um, and even if we were to make the decision again today, we would still do that because the we we made a great deal of progress in our company's okay. um, history with only three people. Yeah. Um, and for anyone who looks at our product and what we've achieved, that seems like very strange that only three people managed to do that. That's because we had three people only spending time on things that matter. Yeah. Um, whereas in a lot of cases, you end up having to have eight, nine, 10, 12 people spending a lot of time on things that actually don't matter if you were to be very rigorous about your thinking. Okay. Yeah. Smart approach. I, I don't, I, I don't want to focus too much on the tech, but I'm just genuinely yeah. interested that the monitoring and observability part in a serverless environment is different to a traditional infrastructure environment. What, why is that? It's just that everything is so ephemeral um, that things come up, they do a certain task and they go away. And the like your traditional vendors for providing observability telemetry uh, and like alerting uh, were just not designed with, with that ephemerality, if that's even a word, in mind. Um, and around the time we started, maybe a year on, you started to see either traditional vendors were starting to catch up, or there were also new players where some you know pretty now pretty uh, substantial companies who were focused and are still focused specifically on like serverless observability, serverless monitoring, which, yeah, is awesome. And I guess it's expected as part of any new, new ecosystem that grows. Uh, but yeah, that, those were, it's just that the tooling wasn't there um, for a while because just because it was new. Fine. Okay, nice. Uh, and I guess three years, like you say, the, the, the maturation process and documentation and that learning comes with it and i guess yeah. the, the features and product evolve um talk, talk to us a little bit about being a founder in not necessarily um today's market but cu- current times what what's your experience of being a tech founder there's there's people listening that will no doubt envy you or listen to you envy in a sense of you've gone and executed on something extremely well so what have you learned and what can you share i guess i don't have uh, very like very specific and concise le- lessons to to list out so i can i kind of like share some things that are top of mind in real time and then we should make sure i'm not babbling on for too long as well but um uh, there are a couple of things. One is that if you are someone who likes ambiguous, creative problems, uh, there is literally no better thing to be spending your time on than founding, uh, but not just like randomly founding, you know, founding something that you deeply care about is a problem that you've dealt with and that you, you can imagine yourself obsessing over. And, if you are lucky enough, and I think the word is luck, at least in my case, I was just lucky enough to find the problem that I cared about and get to, you know, seven, eight years ago or whenever it was, meet style. You know, there's no one else on this planet I'd rather spend so much of my like creative time on uh, than than style. If you're lucky to have all that and the problem and the passion for your space and all that stuff, then it is just the most rewarding thing you can spend your time on. It is r- relentless. Uh, I think 
you can read all you want in books about it and people saying it's difficult and it's hard and everything like that. It's a, it's a lot harder than like it sounds in books and it's a lot more relentless than it sounds in books. But, also, but that is what is fun about it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think ultimately we, we talk uh, a lot about this at uh, MetaView. Uh, and in fact, it's something that uh, Sal talks about a lot as well, which is we want to have an impact, of course, like most, most people do. Um, but we also want to have fun uh, and not just one of the two, just having loads of fun and having no impact. It's like a pretty useless member of society. Um, but also having loads and loads of impact, but no fun. Uh, you probably won't be too happy when you're on your deathbed. And so that is what we're doing. And I think that's like, as a founder, you can have an impact and have fun if you're in the right mindset and constantly do both of it. Um, And when I say constantly, that's like normalized. Of course, there are times where you're not having impact and there are times where you're not having fun. Uh, But net, it is extremely, it's an extremely rewarding experience. It's very hard. Um, And the, the growth that it results in uh, sometimes in the wrong direction, but it's still growth, uh, is the speed of it is something that's very hard to achieve anywhere else um, because you're on your own time here, right? So those are, those are like some abstract thoughts that I have around it. I, there, are, there are many like little lessons and nuggety type lessons that I have learned, we've learned along the way, but those aren't really the important things. The important things are, I think, more, the more abstract. For me, this is a very meaningful and great way to spend my life, basically. Um, and when I speak to the peers and other founders, I like early, early, early members of our, the people who have joined us as well, it's, it's the same for them, right? So, um, I love that. Sh- share with us a little bit about um, some of that customer growth then, because, uh, sorry, I'm not paving over what you've just said, but there, there, there's some pretty awesome words Share with us a little bit about that customer growth then so listeners can, can understand a little bit about just how much you've scaled. Uh, yeah, so look, we we have started about, as I said, you know, three years ago uh, in what is a completely new category. So, of course, the problem has always existed. Uh, ultimately, the outcome, there's many companies trying to achieve the same outcome, which is ultimately make sure the right people are spending their time on the right, in the right environments, in the right companies. Um, but this particular problem that we saw is the, the particular approach that we took is something that is resulting, it, it requires a completely new category, which is basically it started off as conversation analytics, uh, but now it is just a lot about how do you make data-informed team-building decisions, right? And one of the things with a new category is that you have to grind a lot in the beginning to A, figure out whether, uh, what's the reason that this category didn't exist until now? Chances are it's because it's pointless or rather you're onto something exciting but of course with that comes a lot of hard work to figure out whether it's exciting and impactful or not um, a lot of it is around education of the market education of yourself education of your customers etc etc and so really um, we spend a lot of our time doing that until december 2019 january 2020 um, where yes we worked with a variety of different customers but we were very much in discovery mode uh, and and figuring out what the market is um, and around January uh, 2020 uh, was a big turning point for us, uh, which is we, we just we started working on our personalized feedback product uh, that completely blew up. 
as soon as we started talking about it, even before we had finished thinking about the exact execution of it. Um, and, you know, we started working with companies like Bulb, who are extremely well known for the amazing team that they've built in Europe and how fast they've grown in Europe. Yeah. And we started to get a lot of uh, interest from other companies. And of course, that's uh, also when the pandemic starts to get serious, especially uh, in Europe. So around March, April, this is one of those, one of those like learning things, by the way, as a, as a founder, where no, no book could have written about COVID and the impact of that, that would have, you just have to like live, live through it. And it's been, that there's been a lot of, you could take a lot of learnings out of it. And around, so around March, there was so much uncertainty in the world that mm. the majority of the companies stopped their hiring, as I'm sure you know as well, Yeah. where they thought we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're just going to stop growing and give it a few months and see what happens. Obviously, that's not great news uh, for us, but it actually like theoretically not great news or practically it was uh, an okay, absolutely fine news because we said that's fine we will we're going to catch up on our product and really spend these few months while everyone figures their life out we'll figure our life out as well and we will just build an exceptional product uh, and that's what we did and by the time to around september we were coming out of it and uh, of course the pandemic wasn't over and still isn't over but there was a lot more certainty around how to plan for it for other companies yeah that uh, traffic essentially picked picked back up again, and Amazing. We've, we've been we've been growing like uh, at a incredible pace since, and uh, not just in terms of we're getting lots of customers, but we're working with you know next generation iconic companies. We are really really happy with like with the place we are now in terms of the impact we're having, and of course off the back of that success, we all, there there are there are some exciting news that we'll also share in due course, not today with folks around uh, really the the the, ne- the next act uh, in our company. Uh, Love it. But uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's been very exciting, but of course so so, so much left to do. Um, we, we we haven't even we haven't even started. Um, Love it. So. Love it. Honestly, yeah. big fist pump. Where do you think, or what are you? planning for not necessarily from a product perspective but from a tech perspective that could that could equally be as tough to be fair from if we if we don't know what we're planning for from a product point of view but what are you thinking for in regards to tech wise how you could evolve in the next yeah. two years if the trajectory is upwards yeah I think that's an interesting question. I'm going to take that and like change it slightly and say, what, what, what do I think we can achieve in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years? Because I think that's like that. I think that is the prize, uh, okay. basically. And, and I'll, I'll use an analogy. So uh, there, the, in the autonomous driving industry, if you have a car and you put a, you put a radar sensor on it, uh, and that thing, uh, that that sensor will tell you how far certain object objects are from you as you're driving. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't tell you anything else, right? So you just know that there is this thing that is like roughly three to three and a half meters away from me. So one data point on its own, somewhat revealing, but ultimately useless. You can't make good decisions on top of that. Okay. But of course, you have your radar, and then you add a lidar, and that lidar does a more granular job of telling you what objects are where. And it also, because it's more granular, maybe it tells you a bit more about the shape of that object. Yeah. 
So now you have your radar. It tells you there's an object three meters away. You have your LiDAR. It says this is roughly the shape of it. When you combine those two together, you, you have a much better picture, but it's still fundamentally useless. You can't make concrete decisions on top of that. And you introduce other stuff. You introduce a camera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, now you have LiDAR. There's an object three meters away. It happens to be of this shape. And from the image, it does look like a mother carrying a child. And so suddenly you have collected multiple different data points that on their own were not very useful. Uh, but when combined together, it gives you such a perfect picture of your environment that you can start to make better decisions. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, maybe the decision is we'll stop because the light is also red and there's a pedestrian crossing. Happy days. This is, of course, fundamentally that this problem is a sensor fusion problem. You have multiple sensors and you fuse them together to get a perfect picture of your environment. That is what we are about. The, the future that MetaView wants to create and is going to create is how do we apply sensor fusion that has been used a lot in the military space years and years ago, now in consumer assistive stays, uh, space with autonomous vehicles, etc., but is fundamentally underutilized in the enterprise space. And so we care about building teams. We think that is the most important thing companies do. Mm -hmm. How can we apply the same principles of sensor fusion, essentially, to give you the perfect picture of your team building activity? Okay. Of course, we're starting with interviews, but that is not the entirety of your team building activity. What happens when you get, get the data that comes from your interviews, from the data from your meetings, from your calendar invites, from the other exercises that candidates do to the exit interviews that you're having? And all of these things, what happens when you put those together, you fuse them together? to build the best picture of your team building activity. I think that is where, uh, going back to your question about where is, the, where is the tech going, that is the outcome we're trying to achieve over the next N years. And look, we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to start small and be focused, and that's what we are. And right now we're dead focused on interviews and making sure companies are excellent at interviews when they work with us. But ultimately, it goes back to our mission. We want to make team building just as informed by insights and data uh, as other key business areas. And we think the best way to do that is by fusing all this data and give you the best picture of your team building activity. I, I think that's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Thank you. Do we have any insight on N years? What that, what that might look like? Or should we just remain fairly calm and coy and see what happens once you nail the interview bit? I think it's important to remain focused okay. uh, to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that we have a, a already a Herculean problem in front of us to solve, which is let's make sure we're doing interviews really well when we're building our teams. Yeah. Um, and look, when I when I say in years, uh, as any founder would, I I, I want Messi to be around in hundred years, way way after me. So obviously we're not going to have a roadmap for 100 years because that's not a good use of time. Uh, but the N almost doesn't matter because okay. what matters is this is what gets us excited. This is what we think is the most impactful way that we could spend our time and we'll stay focused today. And it's just good to know what direction we're heading. And as, as long as we're roughly heading in that direction, then the end, the end doesn't matter. Like give or take 20 years, who cares, right? The, the world's going to be around for a lot longer. So. Unbelievable context in... In 30 minutes, you know, I make this point quite regularly. We've got 2,000 listeners in, you know, in engineering 
predominantly UK, London, uh, scattered across Europe and US. Help listeners understand what you might be looking for in N period of time. Uh, let, let's just work on the basis of zero to six months, right? Let's be sensible. So yeah. um, I, I'm assuming there's there's going to be some team building of your own. So can you just give some context as to what you might be hiring for, particular yeah. skills or particular mindset? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as I said, again, the some, some big news coming uh, soon. The point is we're at an inflection point at our company uh, and it's very, very, very exciting times because the, you know, up and to the right is the direction we're going at, at the moment and, and hopefully for a long time. And that means we can no longer do what we want to do and what we want to achieve in the short term with just the current team. We are, we, there's literally not enough human hours in the day uh, to do that. So we are expanding uh, our team across multiple different facets. We, we're continuing to expanding our product and engineering team, and I'll talk about that a bit uh, in a second. We are building uh, from scratch our uh, essentially our go-to-market team uh, from sales to customer success uh, to product marketing, etc. Uh, those are some of the things we'll spend a lot of our time on in the coming months. Uh, but going back to our uh, product and engineering team, we. As, as I said right at the beginning, we are product people and we deeply care about our customers. And so every person that works at MetaView the, in, on the engineering side, we have a product engineering position. We don't have a software engineering position. And a product engineer for us is a person whose stack doesn't start at the back end and end at the front end. The stack starts at the infrastructure and back end and ends at the customer. That might mean getting something into the hands of a customer. It might mean going on Slack and chatting to them and figuring out whether it's working well for them or not. And so the spectrum is huge. And there are people on this planet that are excited by this breadth of uh, influence. Yeah. Uh, those are the kind of people that we would love to have be a part of our team. Uh, we already uh, to today have a, uh, a, a team that... Uh, is fantastic folks that are just that you know product engineers not uh, not merely software engineers and yeah we're as is as is i'm sure as are many other companies as well we are on the lookout for exceptional people to join our team that care about the entirety of the stack and not just particular parts we of course appreciate we all have our biases uh, when it comes to the stack and we all thrive in, indiv in the individual parts of it and that's good. That's a, that results in a good level of ownership and accountability at that part of the stack. But ultimately, the, the opportunity as MetaView is your ability to impact a lot more than just the part that you're biased. So if you're excited about that, we would love to chat. And yeah, just looking forward to all these all this, uh, new conversations that we're going to be having, uh, having in the meantime. Product engineers, customer focus, or as in infrastructure all the way through to the customer focus. I know you're listening. So uh, as usual, you know, there's going to be um, links and other bits and pieces below. Uh, I, I want to give you a, a virtual clap, or I hope everyone's given you a, a little virtual clap, Shariah. Um, massive well done. 
we're we're going to stay tuned for uh, some of the news over the coming months. Okay, um, for everyone, there's going to be links below as to how you can go and find the guys and girls. And I just want to say a big thanks again. Let let's see where we're at. And uh, I think all the listeners uh, could well be uh, in a situation where MetaView impacts them at their respective companies. Because I think everyone can resonate with something like this. So fingers crossed. Thanks for joining us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, you're going to put the links uh, below. So all good. If anyone wants to directly reach out to me, uh, S16H underscore on Twitter, uh, you can just drop me a direct message. Happy to jump on a call with anyone who's interested in learning more about what we're up to. Uh, No no agenda, just uh, getting to know folks. If it happens to be that we're we're a good place for each other and we can work together, then great. If not, I'll, I still love love getting to know people and you know helping out. So yeah, uh, and as usual, likes, shares, and all that social media jazz is is massively massively appreciated. And peace and love, everyone. Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing, and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.